Thank you. So this morning, our, our main passage is Luke 1, 26 to 33. Um, I invite you to follow along either in your Bible or the scriptures also on the, the sermon handout. I will tell you, I'm, I'm going to cover not only this passage in Luke 1, but also the one that was read for our candle lighting. And I'm going to actually look at how they, they fit together. And that'll be where we're heading with our passage. But first, from Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel comes to visit Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is God's word for his people today. So, you may know that the British have the legend of King Arthur, and that for for them there's this uh, legend that, that in their greatest hour of need, King Arthur will return to, to rescue his people. So I was thinking about what about America? You know, we don't have kings. So what if we could call forth one of our presidents from our ancient history and, you know, we're in a time of need and maybe we're not completely satisfied with our current set of rulers you know, what if we could call forth one of the greatest of our presidents of old and, and that they would come and lead us and set things right in America? And so I, I throw it out there. Which one would we pick? Uh, you have to go at least 50 years back. That, that's, so no Reagan or Clinton. Um, I heard Lincoln. Washington. FDR. FDR, okay. So we have a th- three proponents there. At, I'll just tell you at 9 a.m., we unanimously decided that Lincoln is the one who would be best because he could heal our land of the divisions and, and all of that. So, so it's, a, it's an interesting thought experiment is which kind of leader do we need? And I start with this because in Micah, he basically prophesies that God will bring forth a ruler for Israel whose origins are from ancient days. In other words, that there'll come a new leader in the future from Micah's time that will, will, will hit, but his origins are from of old. In other words, one of their ancient rulers will return in some sense to rule the people. And so I want to look more at that scripture. And 
in Micah 5, it doesn't give us a name. It doesn't tell you which of their previous rulers it would be, but it gives clues. And so first of all, it says that that ruler will come from the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not a major city. It's, in some ways, you could may think of it as a suburb of Jerusalem. It's five to six miles from the, the larger capital city of Jerusalem. And the name means house of bread. And you'll notice in the passage, it says Bethlehem Ephrathah. And I, I was always curious what that meant. So I kind of did, did a little research. In Jesus' time, there was only one Bethlehem. And so that, that was clear. But there may have been in Micah's time more than one Bethlehem. And so he specifies which one. Bethlehem Ephrathah. It, it had some meaning, but it specifies the Bethlehem near Jerusalem is basically what that means. And like I said, it was little among the clans of Judah. So it's part of the tribe of Judah under that territory, but it's not a major part of Judah. It's not one of the larger clans in, in their ancient tribal coming. But So out of Bethlehem will come a ruler in the future. Bethlehem, or Micah is prophesying for the future, but whose origins are from the past of old. So the clues are there for, for the people of Israel. They would have known. Bethlehem was the town of David. In ancient times, Saul was the king. And God was displeased with Saul and wanted to choose a king of his own that, he that would rule the way he wanted. And so he sent the prophet Samuel to this, this town of Bethlehem and Samuel was instructed to anoint to the next king. And he, he ended up going to the tribe, the, the house of Jesse. And David's, David was the youngest son. It wasn't the one Samuel would have thought of, but it was God's choice to be the next king. So, so Samuel took oil and anointed, put it on the head of David, and so declaring that he would be the next king. And, and Israel... A crown of gold did not make you king. Gold, gold did not make you king. God's presence, the Holy Spirit, made you king. And oil was the symbol of God's presence, his spirit. And so he wouldn't become king immediately. He was still just a young, you know, a, a, a teenager maybe, a boy. But he was God's choice to be the next king. And so that was David. And so what this is saying is that David would be um, the, the one to come would be a future ruler like David. In Micah's time, which would be around 700 B.C. or so, they were worried about the empire of Assyria. And, and he's saying that they were right to be worried about Assyria. Assyria would ultimately take over half of, of the kingdom, of the northern kingdom of Israel and wipe it out. But God is saying this, note this in verse 3. It says, therefore he, God, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Give them up. What does that mean? It says God is not going to save them from Assyria as they hope. God is going to place his people under the thumb of the empires of the world. And that's what happens in the history of Israel. They're under Assyria, and then the, the next empire is Babylon. Then after Babylon is Persia, 
And in all these cases, that they don't have autonomy. They're, they're not an empire themselves. Um, they're just under the thumb of these, these larger world empires. After Persia comes the Greeks and Alexander the Great. And then after them comes the Romans. And all that will take place. Israel will not have its own empire in a sense. They'll always be under the thumb of others until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. When this new future ruler will come. And he will. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. He will rule, lead God's people, the flock, those under his care. He will set things right for them. And it says, and they shall dwell secure. He will give them a security and a peace that no other king could bring. This future ruler that Micah is talking about. And then, but, but more than just for his own people, it says, For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall extend God's rule beyond just Israel. And it says, And he shall be their peace. So Micah is saying, God has a plan to send a new kind of ruler who will set things right. This ruler will be in the mold of King David. He will be like King David in certain ways, but he shall bring peace, the peace that you're looking for. The question I want to throw out is why King David? What made King David the greatest kings of Israel? What qualities did he have that God would describe the, the Messiah as descended from David? In other words, why, why the Bethlehem candle and not some other town? Why David? And so I'm going to give you five things that David did that showed that he was the, the greatest. And it wasn't just because of the extent of his power and glory. There were other kings that had more power and ruled more territory. But I think it's five things that David did. First of all, David faced and defeated God's enemy. He did this even as a boy. When he heard Goliath, the giant, cursing God, David came to the defense, in a sense, of God's glory and was willing to fight this huge Goliath of a man to, to defend the honor of God. And God gave him the strength to defeat Goliath. You may know that story from Sunday school, right? But he faced and defeated God's enemy. Um, David trusted God could give him that kind of victory. A second thing David did is David brought peace. Before he became king, David actually served as a general for Saul, who was the king at the time. And, and under David, by David's leadership, he defeated the Philistine armies that had been oppressing Israel. And he, he really led the people into a time of peace and security, um, even before he became their king. A third thing David did is he had a humble trust in God. Let me give you an, a, a time when, when that showed clearly. Is like I said, David was anointed king, but did not become king until Saul was gone. And Saul became jealous of David and tried to have him killed more than once. And David had to flee. Well, there was a point in time, actually twice, 
David had the ability, had, had Saul at his mercy and could have killed him and so become king right there and then. But David refused and said, if God wants me to be king, God can make me king. He humbly trusted in God's direction that God would exalt him and raise him up to be king if that was God's will. He didn't force the hand. A fourth thing I think that shows the character of David is he led people to God. You may know David also wrote the Psalms, many Psalms that we have, and those are just worship songs. They were the worship songs and the prayers of Israel. So he was not just a secular king that, that commanded armies. He wanted people to know God, to know the Lord. And, and so he, probably the greatest of all the Psalms, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He wanted people to put themselves under the direction of the Lord as their shepherd. And one time when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem, and the Ark symbolized the, the, the relationship that, that Israel had with God. And David was so so joyous of, over this. It says he danced. He, he took off the royal robes and, and danced in worship before God. And when he was criticized, it says, I don't care about my honor. I will honor God before the people. That's what matters, not my honor. He led people. He pointed people to God. And the last character quality of David, and this, this is, is key, is he, he showed a generous grace. When he did eventually become king, um, Saul then was out, and a lot of times the king would come in and wipe out the, the pre predecessor. David didn't do that. And there was one grandson of Saul named Mephibosheth. Hard, hard name. Mo Mephibosheth. Say that three times. Right? Um, and, and he had become crippled. Uh, his, you know, crippled in his legs. And, and he was in a tough spot. Well, David was looking for a way to show kindness. And so he, he brought Mephibosheth into his own house and let him sit, sit at his own table. So, so Mephibosheth, this, this man who deserved nothing, who was in a sense a grandson of, of an enemy of David in many ways, David showed grace and cared for him, brought him into the house so that he would sit at the table with all of David's sons and daughters when they dined each evening. For all these reasons and probably more, David is described as a man after God's own heart. That's why God chose him to be king. He chose him for these qualities. And God made a promise to David, an incredible promise. Think about this. God said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Think about that. No dynasty lasts forever. No empire lasts forever. No kingdom keeps going with the same line of kings. How could this ever be? I would suggest that, of, that David was one of the best that we could do. Yet, he failed. He failed 
completely. He failed to live up to God's standard of a ruler. He failed to rule his kingdom in justice. He failed um, to, to do what was right in his own house and in his own life. You may know that probably his most egregious sin was when he committed adultery. He stole another man's wife. And then to try to cover that up, he had that man killed, murdered. And he still tried to get away with it until God's prophet would not let him go. And David repented. But the consequences of that failure would ripple through his family. It would ultimately lead to civil war within his own house. One of his own sons would rebel and cause war against David. It would go from there and ultimately lead to a divided kingdom between north and south. By, by David's grandson, Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel would be split in half between the north and the south. Centuries later, his line would last a long time, but centuries later, Jerusalem would fall and the descendant of David on the throne would be killed. His empire did not last. His kingdom did not last forever. There's an incredible scene in the throne room of Revelation that, that I think helps see this in a different way. Revelation 5, John the Apostle is having a vision of, what, of things in, in God's throne room in, in, in heaven. And he sees a scroll with seven seals. And the scroll represents God's plan of redemption. God's plan of salvation to set things right. God's plan to bring his kingdom upon the earth where God would live with people. And, and so let me read, re, this is on your, your thing if you need to look at it. Let me read what it says about this. So John sees this, this scroll of seven seals, but no one is able to open it. Verse it says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to even look into it. What's this saying? This is saying no, no one could bring about the, the redemption plan of God. No one could rule God's people right or well. And maybe David was the best of them all, but he failed. And, and so God had searched for a human being, someone on the earth who could, could, who could be that ruler. And no one could do it. God, God looked under the earth, maybe someone who died and could, could come back. None of them could do it. Or even in heaven, no, no angelic creature could do it. And then it says... One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the tribe of David. The root of David, in other words, a descendant of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. God himself will provide the one, the one and only, who is capable of bringing God's plan of redemption into being. And so now we get to our main scripture. Luke chapter 1. 
God's about to announce this great redemption plan. It's, it's going from, from God's prophecy in mind to, to now it's coming reality. And, and so he sends the angel Gabriel in this, this kind of this first event of announcing, here's what's going to happen. It is time. And Gabriel comes to Mary, this, this, this young woman up in Galilee in Nazareth, not, not, where, not Bethlehem. Up into the north, they'll get to Bethlehem later, um, but but she's not expecting this. She she's younger. She's betrothed to Joseph, who who happens to be descended from David. But but no one from David's line has been in power for five hundred years, and so it begins in the sixth month. Well, what's the sixth month of what? The sixth month of her Aunt Elizabeth's pregnancy. And Aunt Elizabeth is giving birth to John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner for Christ. So, so they tells the story of John the Baptist being born, and now it says, and just almost just six months later, after um, Elizabeth, now Mary is going to conceive. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So she's unmarried. She's waiting to be married. The betrothal was more intense than our engagement process. It could have even been set up by families, the family arranged marriage. But she was expecting to be married. Um, And so he comes to her, and she's not expecting this. And he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And I love Mary's, what it says about Mary. She says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I mean, think about it. If you, if you had an angel come up to you and say, greetings, you are highly favored of God. Like, okay, great. <laughs> You know, what's that mean? And so that's, she's trying to, and, and, and the angel sees that and says, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. God has something good planned. Now again, imagine your boss walks into your office and says, Greetings. I really like you. I have something planned for you. Are you going to be a little nervous about what that might be? Should Mary be nervous? Yes, she should. Um, and so then the, the angel says, okay, here's, here's what's going to happen. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You are going to get pregnant. Now, we're not, I didn't include this part in the, the text, but basically Mary asked the natural question, how will this be since... I've not been with a man. Um, in other words, maybe wondering, do you want me to get married to Joseph first? Or do you have something else in mind? And Gabriel says, no, this is going to be special. It says, you'll become pregnant because the Holy Spirit will come upon you. God will do a supernatural work. And for this, because of this, that's why Jesus will be called the Son of God. God himself the one who created is able to do the work in the DNA. God, the God who made mitosis and meiosis and 
and DNA and all that is able to handle that part of it. But he, the, the purpose behind it is to point to the divine nature of Jesus. That he wasn't just another human ruler. That God himself was coming into our midst. So, but that, that comes later in the conversation. But here's what it says why he will come. And this is the part I want to focus on. What did Jesus come to do? Verse 32. He will be great. There's five will be's. He will be great. Does that call to mind Micah? Micah 5. He will be great to the ends of the earth. Um, secondly, he will be called son of the most high. So that is the divine is breaking into our world. Third, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Remember that promise to David? Your, king, your throne will last forever. Your kingdom will last forever. This is going to happen through Jesus, this descendant of David. For, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. What's that mean? Who's Jacob? Well, Jacob had 12 sons, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's other name is Israel. Remember how I said the kingdoms are going to be divided between north and south? Under the Messiah, what was divided will start to come together again. Jesus will not be just king over Judah in the south. He will bring restoration for all of Israel. He will reunite what has been divided. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, all of God's people. And fifth, and his kingdom, there will be no end. God will fulfill the promise made to David that a descendant of yours will be on the throne forever. He will establish his eternal kingdom, which, which has come through Jesus and which is still ruling in the world now. Every time someone puts their faith in Christ and says, Jesus is my Lord. I don't know everything about him. I, I, I have questions. I don't understand it all. But I've heard the good news. And I, I believe it. And I want to receive it. That person becomes a part of his kingdom. And his kingdom is growing and has been growing for 2,000 years as more and more people encounter the incredible message that God sent His Son into the world. He becomes our ruler in our life. And I think the, the, the life of David points to the aspects of his rule that he, he does. What does it mean that he rules? And let's go back to the five things that were great about David and see how Jesus fulfills those. So Jesus faced and defeated God's enemy. Instead of facing Goliath, Jesus faced the ancient serpent, the enemy of God's people, Satan, and, and was able to defeat him by giving his life on the cross and dying for our sins and so freeing us from the dominion of, of God's enemy. It says in Colossians, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Secondly, 
Jesus would bring peace with God for all who trust in him. It says that um, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Peace to those who were already a part of God's people in Israel, but also to those far away, those who had been distant from God, those, those who never had the opportunity under the old covenant. But now in Christ, people like us who are not of a Jewish background, we too can be a part of this kingdom. He can, we too can have peace with God through Jesus. Third, Jesus came in humble trust. Just as David trusted that God could raise him up and make him king, Jesus gave himself to being arrested and shamed and beaten and executed trusting that his father would raise him up again and exalt him. And so what has happened is now the one who gave his life for his people has been exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name so that he is the rightful king of all. The fourth aspect, just as David led people to God, Jesus came to bring us back to God. In fact, he could do it in a unique and only way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Through Christ, we can have a direct relationship with our God and Father. He is the only way to get connected to the God who loves us. And then lastly, generous grace. As David include, included Mephibosheth at his table. So Jesus has set a table for us. Jesus gives us the opportunity to become part of his people and to sit at the table as sons and daughters of God, even though we don't deserve it. On a spiritual level, we are all cripples. We are all broken. We are all like David and have that sinful nature that, that makes war in our inner being against the righteousness of God. And we can, we can put up a front of, of righteousness and portray ourselves as having it all together. But man, in our darker moments, we know we are fallen people and we need His grace. And yet David has said to us, I want you. Jesus has said to us, I want you. Come to me. John 1.12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him as their king, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we can come to the table as sons and daughters and share together in this, this relationship around the table. Jesus came to rule over his people over any who put their faith in him. And, and I, I want us to think a minute about that. What does it look like to, to have Jesus rule in your life? It, it's, a, it's kind of acknowledging that he knows better for our life, lives than we do. Right? Have you ever come to that realization when it comes to like, what, how shall I live? What should I do? 
God is better equipped. My Lord is better equipped at, at, at directing my life than I am. If, if I'm in charge of my own life, I'm going to make a hash of it, right? I'm going to mess it up. And I remember coming to that realization that I have not done a very good job at running my own life. I need someone who will, who will lead and guide me and shepherd me. And, and, and that's what Jesus can be when we trust our lives to him and let him be our ruler. So what does it mean to you to be under his rule, under his direction? And, and what are the benefits of it? If you had to tell someone, why is it worth giving up the, your sovereignty over yourself to letting Jesus be your sovereign, what reason would you give them? What are, what, what's the benefits of letting Jesus rule in your life? I want us, as I close, to think about this idea. Um, there's a, a, a verse, and I want to share it. from. It's from the message. It's Galatians 2.2. 2. And what I want us to do is we get ready to, to join him at the table by sharing in the Lord's Supper. I want us to meditate on this, this verse in preparation. And it's basically speaking about what does it mean to let Jesus be the ruler in our life how he lives in our life. And it's, it's from a paraphrased translation called The Message, but I love how it speaks about it. It gets me to think. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to offer a time of silent prayer, maybe silent confession. Maybe before you come and share at the table, you need to own up to God for your sins and your, your brokenness. Um, so I'm going to read, and then let's pray in silence before God. Paul says, Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and I am not going to go back on that.